Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode. I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and I'm pleased to welcome Tim Cockrell back to the table. Tim recently shared with our church family a message from God's Word in Matthew chapter 27. We're getting near the end, (laughs) and you can stick with us over the coming minutes. We're going to be digging deeper into this critical passage of Scripture. And and Tim, another one of those long passages in Matthew, boy, uh, those who framed the Scripture with passages like this, you wonder exactly, boy, why didn't they break it up a little bit? Mm. We've said it in the past. It is a little hard to break some of these up. Mm-hmm. And, and and here we are. We're at that critical moment that God prophesied all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Can we talk about that just a little bit, just the continuity of Scripture from the very earliest parts of Genesis all the way through Matthew? Of course, we see all the way even to Revelation. Mm-hmm. It's the same story. It is. And, and I think that's important to remember that we're not just talking about the Gospel of Matthew building to a climax in redemption, but really the whole story of Scripture building to this climax in redemption, and then ultimately, like you say, the consummation there in the book of Revelation. But you know, when Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3 and God curses the serpent, he promises he's going to crush the head of the serpent. He is going to send a deliverer to rescue. And so every generation from that point on was looking forward to a child who would be born of the woman who would would crush the power of sin. And I don't think anybody would have anticipated that Jesus would do it in this way, that he would crush the power of sin in the world by absorbing the penalty of sin in himself. And so as he is dying on the cross, he's breaking the power of sin so that we could be free from its penalty. It's interesting, too, as I look back there in Genesis 3, that prophecy was to whom? That prophecy was to the serpent. Mm-hmm. The woman, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. Yes. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, Tim, very early in this chapter, Matthew is bringing back to the narrative Judas, the betrayer. He, he's shown full of grief, full of guilt. He commits suicide. And it's hard for me to read this passage without thinking of another who forsook Jesus only hours before Mm -hmm. this account of Judas, and that's Peter, of course. Both men regretted their actions, but their regrets led them to different responses. What lessons do you think we should glean from their individual responses? Yeah, I think it's such an important contrast, and I think that's why Matthew actually puts the death of Judas here. Matthew's the only one that gives us these details, because like you said, both Peter and Judas denied Jesus, failed him. They were both filled with with guilt and remorse. But I think with Peter, even in his darkest moment, he didn't despair to the point where he gave up hope completely. You know, we have to to read into it a little bit because the Bible doesn't tell us all the details. But I think it's important that Peter is still gathered with the disciples, you know, even when they get the news of the resurrection. He hasn't forsaken that community. And, And I think that's such an important point because so often it's in isolation that we can give in to despair. We can be alone with our own thoughts and kind of just continue to to mull on those things. And then I think one of the parts that I love best about the resurrection account is that when Jesus appears to the women there at the tomb and he tells them to go tell the disciples, he actually says, go tell the disciples and Peter. 
And, you know, Jesus easily could have said, you know, you go tell those cowards that ran away in my moment of darkest hour, they'd better start groveling when I see them. But we see just God's great grace in Peter's life. And then, of course, you know, the restoration of Peter in John chapter 21, where Jesus gives him the opportunity essentially to repent. It isn't said as explicitly there. But he's invited to not just believe in Jesus, but to to be humble before Jesus, to acknowledge his sin, acknowledge his need for God's grace. So then when we compare that with Judas, we see Judas as a man who is grief and guilt-stricken, but he's lost sight of the grace of God. He had heard the teaching of Jesus over and over again, but he never seemed to allow it to penetrate his heart so that he has this sorrow, but it seems to be what the Bible would call worldly sorrow, that he feels badly for what he's done, but he doesn't have any hope of redemption. And so in that moment of feeling hopeless and helpless, uh, confused, and, and feeling like there's no other way of escape, he came to the point where he took his own life. And that's one of the points that I tried to bring out on Sunday is so often when someone dies by suicide, it's because they've lost all hope. And so even if there's someone listening uh, to this podcast, I would encourage you, if you find yourself in that place, know that even just the passage we're talking about this morning is full of hope that Jesus died so that we don't have to. I've, I've told people, and I've heard it said by others, that uh, if you're thinking of that, you're thinking of taking that option of suicide, mm-hmm. uh, wait a day, give God another day, just mm-hmm. one more day to speak into the situation mm-hmm. and to show you that it may it's not as hopeless as you think it is. I, and Tim, just on a, on a larger scale, it just seems to me to promote and to cry out, there is nothing that you have done nothing that I have done. And you and I know what we've done in the past 24 hours, mm-hmm. whatever that is, yep. and what we thought, what we've allowed to come into our minds. There's nothing that I've done that I can't go back to Jesus that he won't say, I love you. Mm-hmm. Here you are. And he will give me strength. He'll give me another chance. There's always another chance with Jesus. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that Satan tries to do when someone is feeling those feelings of hopelessness and despair is to narrow the focus only to the magnitude of the problem rather than to the magnitude of God's grace. And obviously this is speculation, but imagine how Judas's story would have been different if he had waited that day or two and that suddenly on Sunday morning he realizes that Jesus is alive, that even no no sin or betrayal that Judas would commit could, could thwart God's plan. Obviously everything happened exactly as God had planned it, but I would just you know, remind us that God's grace is sufficient for whatever we, it is that we're struggling with. Well, Tim, there, there's so much reference in, to the Old Testament truths throughout this part of Matthew's narrative and, and really throughout all of Matthew, but, but not everyone has the depth of knowledge of the whole of Scripture that you might have. Talk to the newer believer, perhaps even one who just doesn't have the training that others may have. What encouragement can you give that one as far as understanding the whole of Scripture and understanding right. this passage. Right. Well, I think, you know, recognizing those illusions, one, gives us a great appreciation for the richness that is there. And even in the sermon on Sunday, we didn't even have time to unpack all of them. But, you know, we mentioned a few of them, whether it's uh, the the potter's field that was purchased as a fulfillment of Zechariah 11 and Jeremiah 19 or 
or Jesus when he's being accused, remaining silent in a way that amazed Pilate. That was a, a fulfillment there of Isaiah 53. Really, number of, of references to Psalm 22 of you know Jesus being thirsty, Jesus being uh, mocked by the crowd as they wag their heads, or him being challenged. You know, he he believes in God. Let God deliver him. All those are allusions there to Psalm 22. Even them gambling for his clothes relates back to Psalm 22. So when we see all of these things, one, it reminds us of what Jeremy taught us the previous week, and that is that this is all of God's plan coming together. It may seem like the crowd is out of control or Pilate's the one in authority, but that, that God is the one who is, is playing out his plan in a way that was foretold from eternity past. I even find it fascinating that when Jesus is being mocked and beaten by the soldiers, Jesus himself predicted that was going to happen back in Matthew chapter 20. You know, so it's not like he's some helpless victim. He is the sovereign, even as he's the king reigning from the cross. But if somebody's sitting there saying, well, yeah, but I would never be able to pick up on all of that, you know, one, I think we need to recognize that we don't have to understand everything in order to understand something. So maybe there's a number of those uh, illusions that we maybe have missed, but even if we just pick up on a few of those, we can still capture the essence of it. And two, you don't have to have a theological degree to be able to do some exploring. Like if you have a Bible that has cross-references, if you're using a Bible app, it's going to have some footnotes there embedded in it. So do some work of exploration. I think you'll find that it's really fascinating and enriching, not just to hear somebody tell it, but to go look at those passages and look at the context and understand, wow, how many things are pointing us ahead to what Christ would do for us. And I think it's good to point out too, Tim, uh, and I've tried to remind myself of this, uh, you know, my biggest claim to being a theologian is I'm an auctioneer, <laughs> which uh, my point is I have no claim, but we are all theologians, right? Absolutely. We should all be studying the scripture, a uh, theologian study of God. Mm-hmm. And so I, I can attest to the fact that, uh, you know, dating back 30 some years ago when I knew not a whole lot about the scriptures. It wasn't through formal training. It was through personal training. Yes. Uh, certainly uh, a lot of discipleship, but just reading, reading the Bible mainly, but and studying and putting myself in the position to be with other people who knew more than me. But it's just, I, I really want to encourage people mm-hmm. the importance. You can grow. You do not have to be a PhD. You don't have to have the MDiv. You can grow and know the scripture, and you should know the scripture, perhaps more so because you're not, uh, you don't have those professional degrees. You don't have that training. It's important to go at it yourself mm-hmm. and really seek to understand everything that God will give you to understand. Yes, absolutely. So here's something that this uh, non-professional theologian was just thinking through, Tim. Uh, it wasn't too long before the crucifixion that, that Peter, James, and John had witnessed Jesus' transfiguration. We don't know for sure exactly how long it was. I don't. Uh, now, you the more professional guy. You might know. But it, it happens four chapters, four or five chapters prior to the what we call the triumphal entry on Sunday of Passion Week. Talk to us about the power that Jesus displayed there at the transfiguration as juxtaposed against the power that he displays during the crucifixion. Right. 
You know, I love the way that Chris Miller described this as, you know, at the Transfiguration, it was like Clark Kent pulling back his suit and showing the Superman S on his chest. Such a memorable way of framing it. But that was really what everybody expected the Messiah would be like. Like, that was the power the disciples had been waiting for. And so when Peter and James and John are there, they're like, let's build some, you know, temples here. We'll, we'll be able to worship. And, and this is what we've been waiting for. But when Jesus came into Jerusalem, and as everybody was saying, you know, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that was what they were waiting for. What they didn't realize was that the greatest display of God's glory would come on the cross, not on the throne. And as Jesus is suffering there on the cross, like the transfiguration reminds us, there was no lack of power. You know, when they say, oh, you can't save yourself, he could have saved himself easily. Even as Jesus Ten said times over. in the garden, you know, my father could send, you know, 10,000 angels that would be able to come and, and defend me and vindicate my righteousness in this moment. But the love of God to send his son, the, the grace of Christ to remain on the cross out of love for his people, I think that reveals what type of king he really was, a king both of glory and of grace. And so if we can recognize on the cross that this is no less glorious, perhaps you could even argue more glorious, Mm -hmm. that the creator would enter his creation to be mocked and despised by it, to suffer the penalty that we deserved, that is the wonder of our salvation. That is God's grace demonstrated as Jesus carried the weight of our sin and absorbed the full penalty of it on the cross. Fascinating to see those two stories just portrayed not too far from one another. Yep, fascinating. Verse 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a lot there. And, And Wow. You you know, you referenced during your sermon, you referenced two possible understandings of that cry. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing there might be three or four or five uh, if we really delve into it. It's one of those passages for which we find different opinions, certainly I'm sure from church to church, even within a given church. And I'm going to guess if we took a poll in our next elders meeting, there would be different opinions in that group. What do we do when we don't agree about a scriptural matter such as this? Well, often what happens is people argue, fight, and divide. Okay. But that's not well, let's what go. should let's be Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, the first thing we need to do is make sure we're framing whatever the discussion is in proper perspective. You know, are we dealing with an issue of orthodoxy? Are we dealing with an issue of, of central issues of the Christian faith? Because if so, then we need to really drive toward clarity because issues of centrality in the Christian faith are at stake. As such as, give me, give me an example. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the deity and humanity of Christ, the essence of the Trinity, the, uh, the nature of the atonement, for instance, uh, salvation by grace through faith. If those things end up being jeopardized, then we need to really press toward clarity because... We can't afford to not have unity on those issues. Mm-hmm. Whereas if it's you know a secondary or, or even a, a third level matter, we can discuss and debate in, in lively even ways, but we can still stop and say, we may still disagree on this, but we're, we're brothers or sisters in Christ. I think then the second point is to make sure that we're listening well. Because anytime we go into a discussion, it can easily become a debate. And we can frame up sides and we can start lobbying arguments back and forth. But our goal is not to build bunkers, but bridges to, mm-hmm. to really understand what does this person believe? This is a, a brother or a sister in Christ. Why do they believe it? 
where might my blind spots be in this? And so I think one of the goals as we're listening is to be able to understand and articulate the other person's position in a way that they not only would say, yes, I agree with that, but that you even could could make the argument persuasively from their perspective. Once we're at that point of that level of understanding, then I think it's a matter of together exploring by asking good questions, looking at the big, bigger picture of scripture, looking at the problem from a number of different angles to say, you know, how might we be able to understand this in other ways? And then ultimately recognizing that our goal is not winning, but worship. And we may still end up disagreeing. We may say, well, I, I still think this is a better way of viewing it, but to remember what we have in common that unites us rather than what we may disagree about that has the potential to divide us. So even on this issue, you know, we've had some lively discussions and some different ways of understanding what does Jesus mean when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But when it came down to it, and this is what I tried to highlight in my sermon, we all agree that the Father is pouring out his wrath on his Son. Hmm. And so this cry, regardless of the, the exact nuance, is Christ experiencing both the physical and the spiritual weight of the penalty of our sin. If we can agree on that, then the other nuances really are ultimately secondary in importance. Well, and what you say here, uh, identifying the importance of the particular issue at hand and deal with it, dealing with it appropriately, uh, is so important. And I think one of the, as I heard you saying what you were saying, you didn't come down on a side. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was assuming, and I don't know this for sure, but I'm guessing, I, you know, those of you who don't know, your listeners, we have a preaching team who kind of counsels Tim or whoever is preaching that particular week, and they have a discussion. I'm guessing, is it safe to say that in that discussion on this past week, there was difference of opinion on this? Absolutely. Amongst those men who are uh, godly men, and I loved the way you handled that because you recognize that there are different understandings, mm-hmm. and you didn't say, "Well, this has got to be it," because I'm the guy who's up here regularly, and that's what it's going to be. I've got to tell you, I appreciated that, and mm-hmm. I appreciated your recognition that, hey, we don't always have to agree on everything. Right. Yep. And one of the things you're right, we did discuss this in the preaching team, and one of the things I appreciated about it is it sensitized me to the different positions that were there and mm-hmm. the different ways that not only some people held different positions, but how how deeply they held those positions. And so I think that gave me the the insight to to carefully lay those things out in a way that didn't just assume, well, we all view this this way, or well, anybody who has an open Bible would come to this conclusion, such that then I can still have a position or somebody else might hold a different position but again, that we're keeping the focus where it needs to be. Great stuff. I appreciate that. Well, Tim, we read in the account that upon Jesus's death, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And you, you went on to share that this said to the Jews who were watching that Jesus is being presented as, as that perfect high priest. They were steeped in that tradition of the mm-hmm. high priest going in once a year to the Holy of Holies. We see that most recently back in, uh, in the story of Zacharias, mm-hmm. where he goes into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, comes, of course, he comes out not being even able to speak. Mm-hmm. But we see that. But what does the curtain being torn into, what does that say to me, to you, to anybody who's listening on a day-to-day basis? So what? Right. We're not Jews. Well, and I Most think, of us. Right. I think 
when we approach salvation, you know, and what Jesus did on the cross, it, we often approach it in a very judicial way. So Jesus paid our penalty. He was our, our substitute. He was our Passover lamb. And all of those things are exactly true. But I think one of the unique elements that the curtain being torn into reminds us of is that our salvation is not just judicial, but relational. Hmm. And ever since the garden, we mentioned Genesis 3 earlier, there's been a, a separation spiritually between sinful humanity and a holy God. And that, in fact, there was an, an angel poised outside of the garden with the sword of judgment so that if they tried to approach God's presence, the sword of God's judgment would fall on them. And so the marvelous mystery of the cross is that the sword of God's judgment falls on his only son so that now we can approach God's presence, not on the basis of our own righteousness, but because we're wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. And so we now have not only access to God, but we have the very presence of God living within us. That means we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit doing a work of transformation in our lives. And so that means we can boldly approach his throne of grace to help us in our time of need. We can approach God in relationship because we are covered by Christ's grace. And so the fact that the the curtain was torn in two means there's been a whole new way made for us to approach God's presence. And that's one of the marvelous mysteries of the cross. The same requirements, would you say, but the different method, the same requirements of atonement for sin, but a different method. He's opened it, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that high priest. Opens up, perhaps, uh, the way for John to say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We confess our sins directly to and through the high priest, Yes, Jesus Christ. We no longer need an intermediary. We no longer need any further sacrifice. And so when that comes down to how do we put that into practice— you know, some of our, our friends that are Catholic may say, well, I have to confess my sins to a priest or I have to do penance because of my sin. But if Christ is the perfect Passover lamb and the perfect high priest, we have direct access to God. We have complete forgiveness through the cross. And that changes the way we live every day. Tim, we're down near the end here today, and uh, it's Friday here in chapter 27. As a popular preacher used to say when sharing this passage, he said, well, it's Friday, but Sunday's a coming, and Sunday is a coming. Share some ideas for preparing for our Easter celebration. What do you do? What does your family do? Maybe some other ideas that people might want to try as we prepare for this blessed celebration on Sunday. Right. Yeah, our family does, you know, somewhat different things each year, but I I do think, Katie and I were just talking about this on Sunday, being intentional to to ask good questions, to be reminding our kids of of what was happening throughout the week, of, of framing that in terms of its significance and centrality, because I think the danger is we can often almost skip Good Friday and just jump ahead to Easter, like we love the the hope and the victory and the salvation. But I think we need to feel the weight of Good Friday, the the depth of our sin and the punishment that it deserved. So as far as just a few ideas, I mean, I would encourage people to be reading through the events of the Passion Week as we lead up to Easter. Not just from Matthew. I think certainly it's helpful to reinforce it because we've been studying in Matthew. But, you know, read it in Mark, read it in Luke, read it in John. Understand, you know, the magnitude of what's happening in those moments. Then one of the things I would encourage you to do is reflect on some of the different characters in the story. You know, whether it's Peter or Barabbas or Pilate or the mocking crowd or the fearful disciples. 
even Judas himself. I think we can see reflections of ourselves in each of those characters because a part of the story is highlighting the sinfulness of these different characters, their weaknesses and their failures compared to the faithfulness of Christ as he died for us. And so as we see our own reflection in those characters, I think it it helps reinforce the, the desperate dependence that we have on God's grace. And then along those lines, as God reveals those things, to repent, to, to come to God in humility saying, I am a great sinner and you are a great savior. Because it's really only as we feel the weight of our sin and confess it to God that we experience the, the real joy and the hope of Easter. And then, you know, as we talked about what we do as a family, you know, read these passages together, ask good questions. You know, that's many, in many ways, what the Passover was designed to be for the Israelites, that the children would ask questions and they would retell the stories. And then finally, I would just say, it doesn't have to be something, you know, super deep theologically or, or Pinterest perfect in terms of its activity. Just meaningfully engaging our children in, in intentional ways can go much further than you might imagine. And then, of course, in our community, corporately, we have opportunities. On Thursday night, we celebrate a Maundy Thursday service, and then a Good Friday service as well, both available here in our little community, but uh, gathering with other believers and challenging and encouraging one another in the celebration of this uh, blessed event. Yes, absolutely. I think that corporate worship, you know, we're doing the Monday Thursday service here at Grace. We're doing a community service uh, for Good Friday over at the Presbyterian Church. Those are all great ways to, to reinforce that in corporate worship as well. Great. Tim, thanks for joining us. Great to have you again. Thank you. Tim Cockrell has been my guest for this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace, and we've been discussing his recent sermon from Matthew chapter 27. You can access that message as well as other Grace Baptist Church sermons and podcast episodes by using your favorite podcast app or by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking podcast on the media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. And plan to join us next week. We'll be continuing our discussion of God's Word through the first half of Matthew chapter 28. And until then, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.